Hello out there, this is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, and one of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, and I frequently, about once a week in fact, have a podcast that we would like you to listen to. It's called Elder Law Issues. And just to give you some taste of what it's about, oh, here we are doing Elder Law Issues, so, um, so stick around. Today we're going to talk about something called the ABLE Act. The ABLE Act, Achieving a Better Life Experience, has been around for, gosh, five, six years now. Arizona's program has been around for most of that time. Uh, most of the states have adopted some kind of an ABLE Act program. We've talked from time to time about recent developments in ABLE Act, but you know what we've never done, Elizabeth? We've never just done a, what is the ABLE Act? Who would be a good candidate for an ABLE Act account? And Robert, as we're talking about this today, while this is an Elder Law Issues podcast, I want everybody here to know that the issues like the ABLE Act account and what this act is span a whole family. It doesn't have to be just the old folks in your household. This is a topic that we're going to discuss today that can be applied to a young person or an older person. And so when I think of an ABLE Act account, the first thing I think, Robert, is of a savings account, kind of like a 529 plan for somebody who may be disabled. 529 plan is exactly the right comparison. That's what the ABLE Act was intended to uh, approximate. So if you want to give money to an account or put money in an account for your grandchild's or your child's education, you can, one of the ways you can do that, is to open up a 529 account. You can do it under the state law of any state. You can have multiple accounts. You can have multiple people contributing to them. You can have an account for each of your grandchildren or children. Uh, you can contribute up to um, the, the uh, maximum gift tax amount every year. Oh wait, you can actually do it for five years at a time without paying a gift tax. So you could put, in theory, eighty thousand dollars into a 529 plan for each of your grandchildren tomorrow assuming you haven't already used up your exemptions and uh, and and there'd be no gift tax consequence and you'd have set aside some money for their education and then when they take the money out or you take the money out for them because you still get to control the account if you want to uh, there's no income tax on all of the gain in that account during all the years that it has built up. If you do that for a two-year-old grandchild and they don't go to college for 18 years or 16 years, then, uh, then it could be a significant amount of money. So Robert, let's just pause a moment here and talk about the idea behind the ABLE Act and these accounts. It is really intended, this act and, and the use of the accounts, to provide people with disabilities autonomy when it comes to managing their funds. And so the way we may think about something like a 529 plan for a grandchild who's going to go off to college, it's a great source of savings that can grow over time for the grandchild to use and apply to college expenses. The 529 account is an account that can be funded when somebody is younger and actually used as a young person gets older. So you might have a five, uh, excuse me, you might have an ABLE Act account for somebody who could be 18 or somebody who could be 30 and could be used when it's funded for things immediately. Right. I described the 
529 plan, realizing that we're talking today about ABLE Act accounts, not because I particularly want to emphasize 529 plans, but because I want people to understand that the ABLE Act accounts were envisioned as a comparable kind of thing. There are a number of ways in which they're different. You can't put five years of, of contributions in one. In fact, you can't even have two accounts. In fact, two of you can't each put one year's contribution in. The maximum total contribution in a year is the $16,000 that is the gift tax exemption amount. That'll go up to $17,000 in a couple of years with inflation. But, uh, but for the moment, it's $16,000. There are a couple of ways in which you can put more money into an ABLE Act account, but the basic rule is $16,000 total per year contribution. And then, as you say, Elizabeth, uh, education accounts, 529 accounts, are intended to be started when, when the child is very young so that the growth can help put them through college 15 or 18 years later. Uh, with the ABLE Act accounts, the person might already be 18 or 20. They might also be three. They, they can be any age so long as they first were diagnosed as disabled before they were age 26. That's a, why 26? That's a weird age. Well, that's because when they first adopted this, the budget folks at the, in the Congress figured out that that was how much they could afford to, to give the benefit uh, out for. Uh, there's a move in Congress right now to increase that to 46, and that's pretty high likelihood that that's going to pass sometime in the next couple of years. But for the moment, you have to have been disabled before age 26. And, Elizabeth, you've pointed to the other big difference between these and 529 plans, and that is, if I set up a 529 plan for my grandson, I'm still in charge of it. It's constructed so that I'm encouraged to maintain control. But if I set up an ABLE Act account for my grandson with a disability, they're in control of the account rather than me being in control. And maybe they can't handle the account, and so the, their mother will have to actually manage it, um, or somebody else, maybe they'll have a court-appointed manager, a, a conservator, or they'll have signed a power of attorney. But it's really their account, not my account. That's a big difference with the 529 plan. So, Robert, I think what I want folks to know today is that I, I think that these ABLE accounts can be used very strategically, and they are not a substitute for a special needs trust. So I'll say that again. An ABLE account is not a substitute for a special needs trust, and we can talk about that in another podcast, Robert, but for folks listening today, one of the things that I like using ABLE accounts for is using them as a pass-through so that somebody is able to continue getting the maximum amount of SSI he or she may be entitled to on a monthly basis. As folks who are listening today may know, the rules around SSI and what somebody can get each month are quite technical. And sometimes somebody can have that monthly benefit reduced as a result of paying for certain things. Well, it just so happens, Robert, that the ABLE account can be used as a vehicle not only to help for savings and, and for somebody with a disability to have more autonomy with spending, but it can also be used as really a flow-through account to help somebody maintain their eligibility for other government benefits. And it's another way to get the autonomy to the beneficiary in the form of cash. I can't hand cash to an SSI beneficiary recipient because that will reduce their SSI. 
almost dollar for dollar. And so uh, there's no point in my giving them cash if that just means their next SSI check is going to be smaller. But I can put money in an ABLE Act account and they can withdraw it and have no effect on their SSI. That's a very powerful new development to allow people who are receiving public benefits to, to live much richer lives and have much more autonomy. Even if the family doesn't have a ton of money to help them out, they can pass whatever they can contribute through the ABLE Act account. Again, up to $16,000 a year, but that's, hey, that's more than $1,000 a month. And think of how much better their living arrangements could be if somebody could help subsidize their, their housing, as you've described, Elizabeth. Now, Robert, let's remember we are not going to title a house to an ABLE account. Right. We are not going to put a car, have a car be owned by somebody's ABLE account. These are things that are not possible. And there are required payback provisions so that if I died with an ABLE account that had money in it and I'd received some benefits, government benefits, that before that money in the ABLE account was distributed to anybody else, it could be used to pay back um, some of the expenses that were paid on my behalf through the government entity. Right. But if you had a house in your own name, Elizabeth, and you just couldn't afford the, the utilities or the taxes, the ABLE Act account is a great way for somebody to pay those things for you, not reduce your SSI benefit, give you the control that you're writing the check for the taxes, uh, and, uh, and have that much more autonomy. They're just a wonderful arrangement for a particular kind of public benefits recipient. It's so true, Robert, and administratively, they are not hard to set up or to maintain. I would tell people it is well worth having a consultation with an attorney in the state where you live about ABLE accounts and uh, whether or not that particular state has an ABLE program that can easily help set up an account. I will say, Robert, I, I think it's a great benefit, even if somebody decides not to set up an account now, to really know about ABLE and, and how that may make a difference for a family. Absolutely. So if you have a disability or a family member with a disability, the ABLE account is not a panacea. It doesn't solve all sorts of problems, but you should know about it and you should focus on the way it might be useful in your family members or your circumstances. Ask some questions, do a little checking around. Um, if you're a client of ours, we'll be happy, we'll be delighted to talk through how the ABLE account might work. And that's it for ABLE accounts today. I, th I think, Elizabeth, you're right that we can talk about, uh, about the Special Needs Trust versus ABLE account in another podcast, and so I'm going to commit us to doing that in the not very distant future. In the meantime, you've been listening to Elder Law Issues, a weekly podcast of the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. I'm the Fleming. Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman isn't the Curdy, but uh, but she stands in for the Curdy since the the retirement of Tom Curdy. Um, so uh, we hope you'll join us again next week. <laughs>